opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of the Macro Corner podcast, proudly presented by Blue Line Futures. I am your host, Paul Wankmuller. The Macro Corner chart book is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. Not a client? Reach out to podcast at bluelinefutures.com for a two-week complimentary trial of our premium research covering equity indices, bonds, metals, grains, livestock, and more. My guest today is Giannis Mindall. Thanks for joining the show, Giannis. Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for having me back on the podcast coming off of Jackson Hole here. So there's definitely a lot to cover on the monetary side. Absolutely. Well, the topic of today's podcast is economic health is conditional on price stability. Does nothing else matter? I like the uh, the concept of starting out with a quote for the podcast. Don't be a hero. Don't have an ego. Always question yourself and your ability. Who was that one, Giannis? That one is Paul Tudor Jones. <laughs> great, great, uh, great fund manager. Really great philanthropist as well. I, th- I think he's a uh, he's a great guy for sure. So let's one of dive- my favorites. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's dive right into it. So we did. We had Jackson Hole on Friday. The speech given by Jerome Powell. It was it was a short speech, but very very heavy. As we saw the the market, the equity markets took a dive on Friday, pretty much all day long, never, never bounced at all. And why do you think the markets reacted like that? Yeah, so Jackson Hole on Friday was really a contrast to what we saw during the July 27th press conference, where a lot of more good participants turned to this policy statement back then at the end of July, and were basically interpreting it as a pivot, a dovish pivot back then. But what I think the Fed is trying to accomplish here is really gearing the markets towards accepting that this is a Fed that is data dependent. I mean, Jay Powell started off with saying, today, my remarks will be shorter, my focus narrower, and my message more direct, saying that all else in the economy economic health is fully conditional on restoring price stability. Price stability being 2% average inflation. The Fed uses the PCE personal consumption expenditure indicator as a gauge for where price stability ultimately is. But yeah, uh, he was really direct. He didn't take questions after the press conference. He didn't want to obscure his message by journalists chiming in and potentially the market (laughs) having those questions interpreted in a certain way. He was direct. He gave the market a clear signal. And that's what I think it ultimately takes for markets to start being data dependent themselves. That's what Jay Powell wants. That's what the Fed wants. Right. And, And we said we said on our last podcast that that was a prepared speech. He's been writing this, you know, for a while. And the key takeaway is clarity, and the market saw that and reacted uh, without much volatility, one direction. That was it. Yeah, and I mean, like you just said, this was a speech that was enormously well thought through in terms of this was not a speech that was written an hour before he gave it. 
this was a speech that was written over the course of weeks. During the last uh, week before the speech took place, all the different people around Tripal uh, went over this. I mean, this is a policy statement that's uh, really intentional, and that's mm -hmm. ultimately what made it so significant, and that's why the market reacted the way it did. I think that the that Chipotle and the Fed put in a lot of effort in terms of trying to make make it clear to the market this is a data dependent Fed, and please turn to the data instead of the month to month or uh, whatever increments they have their policy statements uh, officially, rather than turning to those statements, but be data dependent. Turn to CPI. Turn to economic data. Right, and and one of those indicators with regards to the data is going to be the yield curve. And I do see here that the Fed prefers a certain yield curve spread when looking at the possibility of a recession. And that would be, is that the 10-year minus the two-year, I believe? Or is it the 10-year minus the three-month? Which, which one do they prefer and why? Yeah, so the Fed ultimately prefers the 10-year minus the three-month okay. T-bill yield curve. So why is that? I mean, you can tweak it all sorts of ways. The market as a whole tends to turn to the 10-year minus two-year. So the Fed sort of diverges from what the market is looking at. Arguably, when you look back in, over the course of history, the 10-year minus the three-month yield curve has lagged the 10 minus two's yield curve. So when when you sort of compare and contrast between the two curves uh the getting out of an inversion of a yield curve that's ultimately where recession hits when you look back in history okay. it's not while the curve is inverted but rather once it comes out of uh inversion and then thereafter on the tens twos the recession takes place and because there's a certain lag uh between the tens twos and the tens three months mm -hmm. um yield curve you could sort of uh, make the argument that the Fed rather turned to the one that lags a little bit since inversion is closer to recession on the tens minus three months uh, yield curve uh, than the tens minus twos. And just for our listeners out there, an inversion in the yield curve is when interest rates that are closer to today, meaning the, the three month or, or the two year, those interest rates are going to be higher than the 10-year interest rate. Yeah, and it's just important to make clear what that signals. I mean, this is not to say that uh, there are different interpretations or not. This is just overall saying when near-term yields are higher than long-term yields, the market is pricing in near-term inflation and over the long-term subdued economic growth long-term yields are a reflection of economic growth because you turn to countries like Japan in the past that had really challenging demographics and Japan still has those demographics. Mm -hmm. And one argument to make in that regard is, okay, the yields there have been so low, yes, due to monetary policy, but also the central bank couldn't generate any inflation, even though they stimulated as much as they could because the overall economic forces which is so strong that long-term growth prospects were low. And what the yield curve in an inversion is saying, long-term growth prospects being lower than near-term inflation expectations. Um, or just, uh, you could also say, okay, near-term growth prospects. But in this 
particular instance, as we see it today, you have near-term inflation. Who knows how long it's going to stick around, but you certainly have long-term subdued economic growth expectations. Sounds good. Sounds good. So another data point that I'm, I'm looking at here, which I believe Jerome Powell said that he does not focus on this, but I, I'd like to get your opinion on it. But that's the U.S. dollar strength that we've seen this year. Near 20-year highs, doesn't really look like it's stopping with the issues going on in Europe. Everybody is writing about the winters coming up and the energy crisis that might be around longer than expected. That is going to push the dollar higher. Now, what what is Jerome Powell's take on that? Yeah, so during a past central bankers panel where Jay Powell was on amongst other central bankers, they asked him whether the level of the dollar is in any form impacting the way monetary policy is set at the Fed. And he gave a clear answer. He said that the U.S. dollar is not within the Fed's mandate. It's not inflation. It's not maximum employment. It's a currency. And that's the job of the U.S. Treasury rather than the Federal Reserve. So despite the strength and uh, the sort of challenges that come with it for especially emerging markets and frontier markets servicing debt in a different currency, the Fed is not really that focused on it right now, especially during a time where inflation is as high as it is. It would be much different if, say, inflation was around the Fed's target and maybe at that point the currency becomes a bit more of a focus. But since there are much larger problems than the absolute level of the dollar, it's not really a Fed priority, which ultimately spills over into currency pairs. And you just turn to uh, the different relationships you have in currency land. And what that reflects, you see that global central banks are uh, trending towards a pretty steep tightening cycle. I mean, in, in the US, you have QT, you'll have rate hikes, and then you have other um, countries that tighten policy, but ultimately it's the relativity of hawkishness or dovishness that matters in between central banks. And what I find pretty interesting in currency space right now is the weakness you have seen in export-driven currencies such as the Korean won, mm-hmm. Chinese yuan, and also the Japanese yen, all of which ultimately export countries um, whose goods the U.S. consumed. It sounds good. And just, just a note for our listeners on that as well. The dollar index that we are talking about that hit the, it's, you know, trading around 20 year highs, 60% of that, I believe is against the euro. So that is, that is very important just to note. Yeah. And I mean, the Eurozone and the EU as a whole has had pretty remarkable circumstances from an energy security perspective or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've had, renewed maintenance um, issues going on with the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. You had Nord Stream 2 called off after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You have had all sorts of energy issues going on in the EU. And just how much it's going to hurt EU citizens over the winter months is a question yet to be answered. But it doesn't look too good. And I mean, as a contrarian, you might as well say, oh, it's becoming a pretty crowded trade at this point just because of how many headlines there are out there stating the obvious which is that the eu is in a pretty bad place right now 
but realistically speaking, these larger trends um, do persist as long as the EU um, keeps its current energy uh, security as it is. Um, and yeah, it takes time. I've I've been talking to different people in the industry over the last week or so, and mm-hmm. in an email exchange, I was talking to someone, basically saying these old economy trends, which we talked about in our last podcast episode. Mm-hmm got developed over the course of decades. And to think that these same trends will be able to get reversed over the course of months, it's just not realistic. Right. Which, is, which then leads me to the conclusion, okay, some of these trends that we see right now, even though the magnitude with which they will exist may differ from the uh, present, uh, they will still exist in some form. So you got to be realistic about the long-term consequences of past energy policy, uh, things like that. That sounds good. That sounds good. And I, I can relate it to trying to make a U-turn with an oil tanker. It's just not going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, that's a real <laughs> good analogy for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, let's let's move on to the equity markets for a little bit. We do. We might be seeing a shift in the way that money managers are, are putting their money to work for the, the end of the year. We can go into growth value. Momentum, small cap, low volatility, or high dividend yields. Do you see any reversals in, in pricing of trend uh, the, the trend prices here on on these different sectors? Yes, ultimately, when we think about how asset managers in general allocate funds, we think about different factors, such as the ones you just mentioned, and we included it in the chart book on slide four. You have growth which is a long duration asset, meaning that cash flows get discounted over a really long time horizon. You think of innovation sort of companies that have a lot of promises right now, Mm -hmm. and those may shake out in the future. That's why investors expect cash flow to get discounted over a longer time horizon. And then you have low volatility assets or high dividend yield assets, such as companies like pipeline companies. You have Mm -hmm. energy companies printing money right now those are companies that earn money and cash flows in the present tense rather than in the future. And they're expected to keep earning those returns, but you got those returns discounted from a nearer uh, sort of time horizon. And when you look at this dynamic between growth versus value, which is just a, another way to say uh, future cash flows versus current cash cash flows, out of this bottom in equities, a local low in June, we have seen growth lead this rally. I mean, it also uh, was sold the most uh, on the back of this initial sell-off on recession fears, Fed hiking into a slowdown. Growth was beaten down the most. It led out of this local low in June. And there was a bit of a, of a top in growth and a little bit of a bottom in value relative to the overall market so whether that's a trend that's going to reverse in uh, in uh fully is ultimately going to depend on where the path of future uh economic expectations is going to lead us and where future economic data is going to come in if there is indeed a secular shift in inflation expectations and therefore the economic trajectory then a re-rating in multiples is something not too wild to think of in terms of being realistic. You right. look back and, to, yeah. I just, I just wanted to say, and the interest rate, you know, as they have gone up, that does 
change the way that things are valued when you're discounting those cash flows. Exactly. I mean, the traditional practice in finance is discount cash flow model, yep. which, which takes into account that discount rate that the overall market tells you. So if you have, say, the 10-year trade at a 2% rate, then that's, of course, going to affect the way you discount future cash flows uh, differently from 5%. Right. And if we set, set, settle in into a quote-unquote new normal, and if we settle in at a rate that's uh, higher for longer, as some of the Fed speakers entertained the idea of, then that's going to impact the way businesses get valued and therefore the equity prices uh, reflected in the stock market. So uh, the, this, this sort of shift and back and forth in between factors is something worth monitoring, especially as multiples remain relatively high in some areas of this market. We have seen a re-rating in a lot of areas, but the question is, are we comparing against um, a recent uh, a recent sort of time period, which is last year, the year before, or are we putting things into historical context, which means we look back on past inflation type periods where multiples were a lot lower than they are right now in certain areas. Sounds good. Sounds good. So let's let's go into something that I thought was interesting. And I, I really I guess this would this kind of goes into play what we were talking about with wage inflation. We have another term here called decentralized coordination on wages. Now, what is that one? Yeah, so this is a pretty interesting graph, I thought. Uh, so we have the coordination of wage contracts, meaning how many countries and in how many countries as a percentage of total do you see ultimately wages being set in one direction? So you might have wage increases at a certain rate in France, but you might have the exact opposite dynamic going on in, say, Sweden. And looking at this graph on slide four, five of the chart book, we just measure how much coordination per se there is. So if Sweden, France, and Germany all set wages in the same direction, then that would count as coordination on wages. And the reason why this is so important is because first, we talked about demographics in the past. And second, central banks as a whole are really afraid of this wage price spiral, meaning if someone earns higher wages, that ultimately feeds through into higher prices and therefore that impacts the inflation outlook and inflation expectations. So we have seen a prolonged period of time ever since really globalization kicked in where you had really decentralized wage coordination, meaning that someone in China might have set uh, wages much more different from someone in the U.S. A factor in the U.S. setting wages much different than a factor in, in the um, in China. And uh, if, if that trend starts pointing in one direction and one direction only, then you have things like labor arbitrage going away in between countries and therefore much more leverage and much more bargaining power in the hands of workers, which then impacts the economy as a whole and the way uh, capital versus labor receives uh, corporate profits. Sounds good. Sounds good. And let's let's finish it off. We were speaking about energy prices in Germany earlier on the podcast, as well as last week. 
But what what is going on with with the U.S. energy policy going in, into the winter? Is there some way that you see us maybe helping out Europe? Are there other countries getting involved in that? Or because you know, at the end of the day, if they're going to be paying more for something, I you know, companies might be more akin to exporting that energy rather than, than keeping it in the house. Yeah. So. The traditional sort of way of looking at things is the cure for high prices is high prices, which means the high prices ultimately create an incentive to produce more, more fossil fuels. This has uh, counterintuitively not really worked out that well in the recent past due to policy issues. Um, maybe there is just a lack of inventory that's available right now. And we turn to indicators such as drilled but uncompleted wells which is a way of measuring how many wells have been drilled by shale producers, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe they have not been completed. And if there are a lot of these wells, that just means there's a lot of spare capacity. But if that number is really low or relatively low in the context of recent history, then that means there's not as much inventory and therefore spare capacity, which is just the amount of additional production that can be brought on quickly might not be what you would want it to have if you want to increase oil production and fossil fuel production in the near term. Another way of looking at this is the U.S. oil rig count on the on the oil side, but also the gas side, which is just another way of measuring, okay, how, how, many, how many rigs are active out there. And also, despite high prices in fossil fuel land, we've not seen those rig counts really pick up to the extent that one would have thought. You right. have had institutional money leave the energy space over the ever ever since the fracking boom really started because returns in the industry were so low and value got destroyed. It will take returns first before capital flows back into the space, at which point new projects get developed. And at that point, you can think of new additional spare capacity being brought onto the market and then maybe the spare capacity situation gets a little bit better than it looks right now. But all of this takes time. I think that as the world has shifted from the world of atoms, meaning physical uh, world products to the world of bits, meaning apps, software, and all those things, as well as shifted from atoms to bits, we've sort of forgotten what it means to have spare capacity, what it mm -hmm. means to have just in, just in case inventory rather than just in time. And all of this is now reflected in real world shortages and also secular price dynamics going on in the economy. But this is ultimately something that we'll talk about next week, I think, again, as we turn to fiscal and fiscal dominance. Right. And, uh, and just to reiterate, when you're talking about gas, that's uh, natural gas, correct? That is natural gas, yes. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. Sounds good to me. Yeah, we do have, uh, coming up this Friday, we do have a jobs number. And then in the United States, there is a holiday. Uh, Labor Day weekend is on Monday. Almost Most markets will be closed. So that is something to keep in mind for the volume on the week coming up. Uh, usually on Fridays, right after a big number, if it's a holiday weekend, things get, get pretty thin in that afternoon session. Yes, I mean, something to watch. And again, data dependence. So Data dependence and clarity. That's it. That is the key takeaway of Jackson Hole for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today, Giannis. We have a lot to look forward to in September. And um, just, just always keep in mind that 
the market is really, really paying attention to Jerome Powell and Fed policy. That That is what is driving the, these markets these days. So thank you very much for being here. And don't forget that the Macro Corner chart book is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. Not a client? Reach out to podcast at bluelinefutures.com for a two-week complimentary trial of our premium research, and that's covering equity indices, bonds, metals, grains, livestock, and more. Thank you again, Giannis. I really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Thanks so much, Paula. It's going to be a good one again next week. So, yeah, thanks for having me back on. That's it. Take care, everybody. Happy trading. All opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition.